Let's just say that somebody had about as good a grasp on the Bible as is possible. Nobody knows it perfectly, as far as I'm aware in Christian history. Nobody's memorized every, every word, every verse, every chapter. But let's just say as good a grasp as could be had by anybody. Let's say they had almost memorized the whole thing, or if you started a verse, they were so familiar with the Bible, they could probably finish it and maybe tell you the one before and after if you gave them a little bit of prompting. Let's say they understood every chapter and the intent of it, why God included it very faithfully. What do you think such a person would say to the question, what are the top three to five most important paragraphs in the Bible. What would somebody who knows it well, and not just the words, but the author, why he gave us this love letter, this inspired book? Well, that is a very challenging question, and if there were three to five people who understood the entire Bible as well as I've suggested, maybe they would differ from one another on most important passages if they had to list three to five of them. But what if instead of taking you to three to five people who were that familiar with the Bible, I could take you to billions who've immersed their life in this book. Not just billions who are alive today, but what if I could put you in the proverbial time machine and warp you around through centuries and places? What if I could beam you to different continents and time periods and you could sit in on churches and you could understand every human language that's ever been spoken where the church has advanced and and you could discern from yourself with your journalistic notebook, these people all seem to be saying that the most shaping message of the Bible is pretty much the same. Well, we don't have to wonder what kind of passages would be on the list if you could take such a survey, because we do have the record of Christian history, and we have Bibles in our own laps and can discern from ourselves that the top three to five passages of the Bible would have to include on the basis of the swath of church history, passages like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If you believe that verse, you have to believe all the verses that follow it. Similarly, at the very end of the Bible, literally the last two verses, Revelation 21, uh, 22, verse 21. If you believe that verse... It absolutely has to change everything about how you live your life. I am coming quickly. That's the end of the Bible. So there's the first and the last. And if you believe those two, you just absolutely live in blatant, willful, dictionary definition hypocrisy if you don't believe what's in the middle. So I think pretty much all Christian Bible-immersed people would probably put those two up there. Well, if we only have three and not five, I I think it's hard to get, yeah, we would all put number three in there, but let's say we got five and not three. So we have Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21. If you look at church history, you got to put John 3-16 in there. Not for its sentimentality that is swept through the West and a I think misapplied understanding of love. God so loved. The emphasis isn't on sentiment. So much love. The emphasis is on in what way. God in this way. He so loved us that he gave his son. So if you understand that verse in church history is a pretty tour de force, wait to say that verse packs in really the message of the whole Bible. If you believe in him, 
Believe is not mental assent. It's not agree. It's entrust. Believe in the Bible. Faith is not a work. It's not something you do. It doesn't earn. Faith is not effort. Faith is actually the empty-handed receiving of all that God is for you in Christ. It is an embrace. So if you believe, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So there's Genesis 1-1, there's Revelation 22-21, there's John 3-16. Well, because I get to stand here today, I'm going to say we're going to do five. What else would make the list? Well, if those were top three, church history would, get, history would give us good reason to think so, then we might find some difficulty identifying which passages get into the fourth and the fifth spots on the Mount Rushmore uh, of Bible passages. Maybe uh, many could contend looking not just at their own life and appreciation, but as I said, billions of Christians over times and places, languages and cultures, people would say it's got to be the great eight. Romans 8. Maybe some would say, no, you fast-forwarded too far. It, it's got to be the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, because that's the turning point. The, whole Bible, the Bible has two chapters, everything before Abrahamic covenant and everything after it. This has clearly got to be in your top five. Or maybe people would say, no, 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 no. You can't dismiss 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as was prayed earlier, and I didn't prompt it. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Christ. You can actually get close to God without being incinerated because the God-man, the mediator, reveals God to you. If you step into his holiness without Jesus, you die. But Jesus gives you all the glory of God in a way that allows you not to perish. It's got to be 2 Corinthians 4. Maybe people would say Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's got to be that one because you were dead. You were at the bottom of the ocean, dead in your trespasses and sin. You had no capacity to grab the life preserver if God would have thrown it to you. He didn't throw you a life preserver. He gave you his son to go to the bottom of the ocean and die in your stead and bring you back up in his risen victory. It's got to be Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Well, you can see the problem now, right? Maybe people would say it's the most magisterial look at the Redeemer in my estimation in the whole Bible. Hebrews chapter 5 through 10, the high priest who also is the sacrifice, who penetrated heavens, holy of holies, with his own blood. And Hebrews 9.24 stands in front of the face of God for you as your priest forever. No priest in the Old Testament. Thousands of them. Thousands of them. Not one of them would say to any, any, any saint in the Old Testament, come on into the Holy of Holies. But Hebrews 5 to 10 says, Jesus went into the Holy of Holies. He turns around to all of you and says, why don't y'all come on in? Maybe it's Hebrews 5 to 10. Well, how about the 40-ish marks of a true Christian in 1 John? You want to know if you're a Christian? 1 John is in your Bible. What about the portrait of the Redeemer in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5? You see the problem, right? Well, I've offered three that seem like they have to fit in the Mount Rushmore. Genesis 1-1, Revelation 22-21, John 3-16. But do you know that there has been a passage that has eclipsed all of them for the last 2,000 years in church history? More than Genesis 1-1, not more important, I'm saying more predominant in church history. More, if you can quantify, than Revelation 22-21, John 3-16, there has been another one that's the biggest face on Mount Rushmore for 2,000 years. It's our sermon text. It's Matthew chapter 28 Verses 16 through 20. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Word of God says in Matthew 28, 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help for us to understand and apply it. Oh, Father, many, many songs and many psalms have a chorus. We've sang a few today that have a chorus, a repeating refrain. And as we look back through church history, the song of the redeemed has had these words that we have just heard read as the chorus. This has been the marching order. This is the mandate. This is the words of the risen king to his church. This is, as has been said, the church militant, the church moving forward, the church on offense, the church seeking to divide and conquer the whole world and plant the flag that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we ask that you would show us where we personally are out of compliance with what this passage says. I pray for not my enthusiastic preaching to bring about guilt, but by Holy Spirit conviction to show every true Christian in my hearing how we are not obeying the marching orders of our King. And I pray especially for this church that Grace Church Memphis would be, according to you, a true one. That we wouldn't make it up as we go, but that we as a people would be typified by the words of this passage, as has been the case throughout church history of all true churches. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. There are three things I want to try to show, and you can pray along the way that I would try to do, that I would be enabled to do it somewhat briefly. No promises on that. You pray it. We'll see if God answers it. What happened before, what is said during, and what happened after. What happened before this passage? Let me tell you a quick story. I've told it here before, and it needs to be repeated after today again. One of the most shaping moments in my life, and by virtue of my calling, it had a trajectory-shaping influence on this church. It was 2008 or 9. The church was two or three years old. This church was two or three. We're 14 and a half. So this church was two or three 2008-2009, a single lady in her mid-40s was traveling through Memphis and spent Saturday night in Memphis, came to church on Sunday morning, continued her travels Sunday afternoon. Again, single lady, mid-40s. She was coming from the Northeast, the D.C., greater D.C. metro area, headed toward Texas, stopped in Memphis, spent the night, came to church here. We were meeting a block away at that time. She stayed with some former Grace Church members who have also now moved along to to Texas. She came to church with them that Sunday morning and, as I said, continued her journey that afternoon. She's been here, as far as I'm aware, a grand total of one time. I preached this passage on that Sunday. A couple of days later, she emailed me. She was incredibly kind and encouraging. She mentioned specific encouragements of how the Lord ministered to her through our corporate gathering, through the prayers and songs, and even the sermon. But she had a no-nonsense rebuke for me. She very graciously, cue last week's sermon, 
All of us need to grow in this grace very graciously and very biblically. Pointed out a colossal blind spot in my sermon, and that's putting it generously. As she correctly pointed out in her grace-filled rebuke email, she noted that I said the word gospel many times. The gospel is great news. In our passage, we hear from the Lord of the gospel. These are quotes from her email that I said in the sermon. The one who accomplished the gospel is telling his followers he has all authority, but she pointed out that I assumed the gospel rather than proclaiming it. And as she put it, no one could get saved on the basis of the sermon I preached that day. I agree with her. She was right. While I said true things about Jesus, or as she put it, I didn't say anything untrue about Jesus, I never made clear what the gospel actually is, and to make that mistake from this passage is a colossal blunder, to put it generously. When I got that email, I did two things. Number one, I thought about what she said, I contemplated the sermon, and I repented. I got on my knees, my face to be exact, I asked God for forgiveness, I asked Him for the grace and the help to never stand behind His book and assume His gospel. I ask the Lord also for grace moving forward to do in every sermon that I ever preach for the rest of my life what Paul said he asked the Ephesians to pray for him to do, quote, make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. That's the first thing I did. From then until now, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not surprised if there are exceptions to this, as far as I'm aware, I have made the gospel known in every sermon I've preached since then. Hence, I repented. Number two, I sent the email to our elders, and I expressed my full agreement, and I asked for their forgiveness, and I asked them to help me and to disciple me and for us to help one another to preach the gospel any and every opportunity the Lord ever gives us to represent His Son from His Word. You see, this passage bears its weight and is the dominating paragraph of the Bible for 2,000 years, the Great Commission as it's known, because of what precedes it. The reason that Jesus could receive worship. Verse 17, some worshiped him. That would be idolatrous unless he's God. The reason that he could receive worship and boldly declare, verse 18, that all authority in the heavens and on the earth belongs exclusively to him is, verse 6, he rose from the dead. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. You see, the men who were worshiping Jesus in verse 17 and received the Great Commission in verses 18 to 20 were listening to the words of a person that they knew for sure had died on the cross a few days prior. Their hopes had been dashed. They had vanquished everything in their life to follow this man because they came to believe that he was the long-awaited Savior of the world that God had promised in the pages of the Old Testament for over 2,000 years. They walked with him for three and a half years roughly. They listened to his teaching every single day. They witnessed his miracles. They saw them with their own eyes. They received his love. And they were devastated. When their Jesus was apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they saw it happen. When he was led through a series of unjust trials, some of them with their own eyes saw him beaten, whipped, mocked, and one of them was standing there when he breathed his last breath, John the Apostle, but the rest of them had left. 
They knew he had been crucified between two thieves as if he were the scum of the earth. That's some hero, right? They were devastated before this passage. Their hopes were shot. They had lost all confidence that their Messiah was the Messiah. But friends, I'm here to tell you today that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, did die on the cross as our Savior. He died as a substitute in our place for our sins. His impeccable life of holiness that these men had observed with their own eyes and his perfect obedience unto God the Father led to him being slain on a cross. He, on that cross, endured not only the worst that men could do, but more, more, more agonizingly, He endured the just wrath of God for your sin and mine. Our scriptural call to worship said, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. If that verse is true, and it is, and Jesus doesn't die for you, you have a problem. If he's righteous and just, and you have no mediator, you have no hope. His impeccable life of holiness, his perfect life of obedience to the Father led to him being crucified between two thieves, receiving the worst that man could do to him. He did die as a substitute in our place, and I'm saying the worst that he endured, we know it, we know it, we know it, was that he drank the full cup of God's wrath down to its last drop for the sins of all all of God's people. He took them in his body on the tree. He became a curse for us. Go read the curse motifs of the Old Testament and find out what God thinks about cursed people. Jesus took that on the cross and we know, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. This isn't make-believe religion. It's not hope-so religion. It's not figment of our imagination. It's not power of positive thinking. It's not sentimentality. We know, we know that God accepted the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and to quote Romans 1 verse 4, declared him to be the son of God with power by Raising him from the dead. That's the gospel. That's what I didn't preach 2008 or 2009 when I came to this passage. The reason it's so vital to understand what comes before the Great Commission, the dominating chorus of the last 2,000 years of church history, is because without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there is no salvation. There is no church. There is no mission. There is no heaven for you. Peter, who was one of the men who saw the risen Jesus and heard him speak this passage, wrote in his epistle some years later, God has caused us. Who did the action? God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3, without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no gospel, there is no salvation. In the book of Acts, the same men who heard Jesus speak the Great Commission, our passage, the same men who saw him alive from the dead, they watched him in Acts chapter 1 ascend to heaven, had one primary message in all their sermons in the whole book of Acts. Every city they go to, every hamlet, every town, every incensed mob, all the angry people, all the happy people, they had one message, Acts 3.26, God raised Jesus to bless you and turn you from your wicked ways. Acts 5.30, the one you killed by hanging on a cross, God raised him up again. Acts 10 verse 40, God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 13 30, God raised him up from the dead, verse 33, and fulfilled his promise in Psalm chapter 2 that Jesus would never undergo decay. Acts 13 34 and 37, because God raised Jesus, his body forever remains glorified. Acts 17 31, God proved that he will judge you and me. This isn't fear mongering, this is love. He will judge every person who's ever lived through a man, namely Jesus, and the 
furnished proof. Acts 17, 31, the, the inignorable reality. You can't make it go away by thinking it's not true. Acts 17, 31, he will judge every single person who's ever lived by a man, Jesus, and the proof he furnished is, Acts 17, 31, he raised him from the dead. We'd be here all day long. That's not an exaggeration. If we just tried to look at all the New Testament passages that are devoted to the objective fact and the central Christian importance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead for our salvation and his lordship. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're looking at Matthew today, each give a disproportionate amount of their inspired biographies of Jesus to the final week of his life. Half of John's gospel, a third of Mark's gospel, almost a quarter of uh, Luke is given to one week of Jesus' life because that's their main point. They spend their first portion substantiating that Jesus is the Messiah that God promised to send in the pages of the Old Testament, and then they make a beeline for almost half of their material to the last seven days of his earthly life. Why give that much time? Because that's the point. His death, which culminated... In God's declaration to the universe, he is both Lord and Christ, and you can't do anything about it by raising him from the dead. It's the principal point of Christianity. And the risen Jesus is the standard by which God will judge all peoples. That's what happened before our passage. So what happens in it? Why is it the Great Commission? I want your eyes to fall on verses 16 and 17. Then verse 18, and finally verses 19 and 20. Those are the three parts as I see it. Verse 16 and 17, some worshipped him, and some were doubtful. You can see that they meet Jesus at the mountain he had designated in Galilee. And when they met him, some worshipped and some doubted. Before we go to the worship and the doubt, just really quick on mountain he had designated. We don't know exactly which one it is, but we do know where it was. It was in Galilee. And just for your quick Bible geography, Jerusalem is down here. Galilee is up here. The Sea of Galilee is here. The Jordan River is here. Jerusalem is here. It's a long way away from where he was crucified and rose. It's not from here to across the street. It's a long way away. He said, meet me in that mountain. Many think that he said, meet me in the mount, at the mountain that I designated in Galilee because it was in Galilee that Jesus preached the sermon on the mount, the mountain. And perhaps it was the very same mountain in Galilee. We do know that that one was in Galilee. But there's more to it than just that. The mountain is significant for a ton of reasons in the Old Testament, and even in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, God often revealed himself on a mountain when there were cataclysmic turns in redemptive history. Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac, Genesis 22, Mount Moriah. God etching the Ten Commandments into two stone tablets with his own finger. Moses wasn't a good chiseler. God wrote it on Mount Sinai. Jesus, as I mentioned, gave the Sermon on the Mount on a mountain in Galilee. And here after his resurrection, Jesus met on a mountain in Galilee. This is the Lord Jesus's way of connecting. I'm the God of the Old Testament and I'm doing something very significant. The victory is won and the king is saying to all his subjects, come meet me at my designated location because I have some marching orders to give to my people. Notice the two responses I mentioned are worship in verse 17 and doubt. Some worshiped, some were doubtful. It's, it, it's hard to translate the phrase, is it two things or one thing? Are they doubtfully worshiping or worshipful with some doubt? Or is it two groups of people, some worship, some doubt? Well, either way, we can see the, the uh, dissonance of the responses. Worship, of course, is the right response to seeing anybody get up from a grave. If you knew that somebody died a few days ago and several of our church members had the opportunity to be at one of our precious church members' funerals yesterday, 
If you knew somebody had died a few days prior and they walk in the room today, I want to be the first one to worship them. And I hope you would all stop listening to me and do that. Obviously, they worshiped him. They knew he died. But the doubt may minister to some of you, like me, because of where you find your heart today. It seems that this doubt is not, that's not Jesus. It's more, can it be? Is this really him? I, I, I don't and I won't believe this is true. It is not, it seems, the spirit of it. New International Greek commentary says that worship and doubt are actually combined earlier in one place in Matthew's gospel. And it helps us understand what Matthew's saying here in Matthew 28. Some worship, some were doubtful. The only other place in Matthew's gospel that the word for doubt is combined with the word for worship is in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus walks on the water, Peter gets out of the boat, Peter's walking on the water, and then, as you know, Peter starts to sink. And Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 14, 31, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Same word. Two verses later, when they got in the boat, they worshiped him. Peter doubts, everybody worships, and many think that Matthew's saying Peter was one of the doubters still because of that connection. But once it's been verified that this is indeed the very same Jesus of Nazareth whom they had known so well for the last three and a half years, it is him. In fact, he is raised from the dead. They all worship. The passage doesn't say it, but the rest of the New Testament does. And I want to say to you today, that must be your core response to Jesus. Let me just put it another way. I, ho I hope this is, in fact, Holy Spirit, I pray that this will help everybody. Are you a Jesus worshiper? Deep in your heart. If nobody else ever worships him again, nobody loves him, nobody follows him, nobody goes to church anymore. Are you a Jesus worshiper? Can you unsee a person that you say you know who rose from the dead? Initially, I get it. Is it true? Can it be? It, it's like the, the hope against hope feel. But once it's validated, yes, he's alive. Read the New Testament and you get the footnotes of what it looks like for these same people who heard this commission to worship Jesus. Matthew then records what this risen Jesus had to say to these people. Verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's not telling you to do anything. That's declaring something that is done. This verse captures the main theme of the entire gospel of Matthew. If you want to know what Matthew's about, it's about this. Jesus is the king. Everything from the first verse to the last verse is about that theme. Just like the gospel of John in our sermon series that we're taking a small break from. That small break ends today. Lord willing, we'll resume John next week. The theme of John is believe and live. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the king. And here at the end of the gospel of Matthew, the king is clearly declaring his kingly authority after he finished the work of redemption that the father had entrusted him to accomplish. The fact that Jesus has all authority has shown up a lot already in Matthew's gospel. All authority belongs to Jesus. That's a big time theme in Matthew. 729, 89, 96, 98, 21, 23, 24, 27, 10, 1. I could go on. But Jesus, Jesus waits to say it himself until he gets up from the dead. It's been building. You've been wanting him to say it the whole time. Matthew's been pushing you to the edge of your seat the whole time. He's got to tell everybody who he is. When he got up from the dead, it's the first thing he said. This is the truth that all disciples of Jesus must hear 
and embrace. We will be cowardly and weak in our calling to advance the cause of Christ if we are not convinced that all the authority, all, pas, all, every bit of all the authority in the whole world, all the power, all of it, not one granule of power does not belong to him. All the authority in the whole universe belongs to the risen Jesus. And we're going to be a bunch of cowards and weak and unsure. And we're going to abdicate our responsibility unless we hear and believe his authority. That's why he starts there. All authority means that nothing, not only nothing will, nothing can touch your life unless he permits it. That's impossible. Whatever touches the lives of the people of Jesus must first be filtered through his fingers of love. It can't get to you unless it goes through him first. There is no foe, there is no rival to his throne. Every power and all cumulative powers pale in comparison to the power, that's the word, exousia, the authority of Jesus. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of all the Lords, and his term is not going to expire, and he's not up for re-election. His kingdom is never in jeopardy, ever, no matter what. He's the sovereign of the universe, he upholds all things, even his enemies, by the word of his power. And he's going to reign, Psalm 1, Hebrews 10, until he puts all his enemies as the footstool for his feet. He's the king. He has all the power. So when Hebrews 11 is happening, and his faithful followers are being put alive into a hollowed out log and sawn in half, Hebrews 11, he still has all the power. When Romans 8 is happening, we are considered like sheep to be slaughtered all day long. Yet nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ because here it comes, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How do you conquer by spilling your blood like a sheep being led to slaughter? Because the king to whom you belong is in control of it. And they will be justly judged by him. All the authority belongs to your king. Nobody has any authority that he does not distribute to them derivatively. It's borrowed authority. It's temporary. And I don't know how to explain it because it's the precipice of mystery and God hasn't given us to understand it fully. But the book of Lamentations teaches that God will even use evil people to take care of his people and to propagate his gospel. That's why Jeremiah weeps because he sees the horrendous effect happening to the people of God for their own sin from those outside this is why frail children of God people who know they're weak we know that we're cowards we know that we're not going to march into the face of adversity and boldly declare the kingship of Jesus and call people to repent and believe the gospel or they're going to perish in hell forever. We know that we're cowards, but if we believe that he has all the authority, the king of the universe, risen from the dead, never to be violated, he will never have his throne jeopardized. If we believe that, then Proverbs 28.1 will be true of us. The righteous are as bold as a lion. He has all the authority. But I want to say to us, it's not only highly unlikely, it's totally a logical fallacy. It, it, it's actually naivety on bold display. It, it, it's a form of gullibility that's inconsistent with the gospel and the lordship of Jesus. 
to suppose that if we believe the all-authoritative Christ, we will boldly go into the darkness with the gospel if we can't talk about him with one another who claim to also belong to him. So from last week's sermon and from today's passage, I want to ask you, can you think of the last time you tried with your voice to make another child of the king happy in the king? If we can't talk about him with each other in the safest place, I don't mean that as guilt. I mean that as, Lord, help us to do that. If we can't talk about the king together with his children, it stands to reason we're not going to talk about the king with his enemies. So what's his command? It's verses 19 and 20. And I oh so bad want us to sing all glory be to Christ. So you got to pray harder that I'll be briefer. Okay? The king's command, this is verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As I've mentioned, if you don't already know, this is the passage that Christians are talking about when they speak of the Great Commission. It's verses 19 and 20. It has shaped the thrust of Christianity since Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago. It has been the dominating temperament of Christian churches everywhere. In these two verses, there's only one command. It sounds like in English there are quite a few. Go, teach, baptize. But actually the only command in the whole paragraph is make disciples. It's the only imperative. That's what you're supposed to do. All the other things that look like commands are actually participles, I-N-G words. As you are going, baptizing, teaching, make disciples. That's the command. So in the beginning of the Bible, and I believe it was Jesus speaking in the pages of Genesis, we have the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth and subdue it. That's Genesis 1.28. In this passage, we have the church mandate. Make disciples. The fruitfulness and multiplication of the church age is not biological, it's spiritual. This is the church's primary calling. This is our commission from our king. This is our job description. The church's mission is primarily to make disciples. We are to do many other things in obedience to our Lord. And if we don't do them, we're not obedient. We are to care for the orphan and the widow, James 1.27. We are to remember the poor, Galatians 2.10, minister to them. But the main thing, the work that actually leads to all the other work is make disciples. So I'm going to ask you again, have you tried to make another child of the king happy in the king recently? I'm talking about you went to him and said, what can I do to encourage your faith? That's what I'm talking about. How can I pray for you? Uh, is there any burden you're carrying that I could help shoulder? Um, here's something the Lord's been teaching me in his word. Maybe it would be a blessing to you. Happy in the king. That's, that's one question. The, the second question I'm asking now is this disciple-making mandate. I said it's our primary God-given task. It's the number one mission of the church from the king. Because we are not mainly aiming to put springs on people's wagons so that they may travel a little more smoothly during this lifetime on their road to hell. Yes, care for the orphan and the widow. Our God told us to do that. Church, we have to do that. Yes, let's remember the poor. I'm not minimizing those things. We have to get better at that. There's poverty all around us, not just material poverty. We have to do that. that that's, that's what our king told us. But we're not 
called to put springs on people's wagons as they travel a little more smoothly in this lifetime on their way to hell. If we help alleviate some suffering and some poverty, if we do some good orphan and widow care and ministry to the poor, and we do not prioritize disciple making, we will be in violation of our primary marching orders from our Redeemer King. This is what he told us to do. This is the main command. The Lausanne Congress on World Mission, decades ago, put it very well. The church is called by the risen Christ to care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We don't want people, we all live with pain. I did a funeral yesterday, and the funeral director was standing at the graveside with me, and he said, Preacher, keep it simple. Everybody's got pain. People don't know how to deal with their pain. We care about all suffering. We're called to care about all suffering. Our our Savior is compassionate. He's tender. He's humble. He's gentle of heart. He's lowly. He's compassionate. But He didn't come just to take away a few of our little lifetime burdens and they don't feel... Very little to many of us. Our problems feel like very big problems, but I promise you, in compare to what will matter most to you, 10 million years from now, every problem you face outside of being united to God in Christ will look very, very small. What's the posture of your heart in response to the words of the risen Jesus? That's my third application question if you're counting. What's the posture of your heart? I didn't say make disciples. He said it. What's the posture of your heart to him? And if you're not moving toward his children in trying to help them become happy in Christ, let me just say, At some point in your friendships, Jesus should be part of the conversation. If you're not moving toward his children, how are we going to pantata ethne, all the nations, to make disciples of people who don't yet know Jesus? That's what the passage is about. There are many, many, many reasons to understand that Jesus intends for us to receive this commission as a local church commission. What I mean is, it's not primarily spoken to me or to you. You go make disciples, I go make disciples, but to us. The king is not calling us to go make converts. He is calling us to make fully formed followers of Jesus. Disciples. Yes, they have to be converted, but we're not to make spiritual infants and leave them helpless. This is a local church commission. It's not an individual missionary commission. You go be a missionary, you go do the Great Commission. No, this is a local church commission. We together are to be on mission with our risen King to be making disciples near and far for the glory of Christ and for the joy of all people. The fact that disciple making is in this passage, in this passage, the fact that disciple making in this passage is a local church commission, not an individual Christian commission, becomes more and more clear the more we walk through the words of the King. Look at the sphere of our assignment. I just mentioned it. It's pantata ethne, all the nations, all the peoples. Maybe it would be helpful, and the reason, only reason I try to enunciate the, the Greek phrase, maybe it would be helpful to our modern ears to transliterate it, not translate it. All the nations, pantata ethne, all the ethnicities. Here we're seeing that the church is offensive, not defensive. We're called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the darkness across the whole planet until Jesus returns. Jesus said this actually four chapters earlier in Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The import of this commission is clear. And I pray that the Lord will help me to say this so faithfully. If we don't go make disciples of all the nations, they have no hope for eternal life. 
while we're over here infighting among Christians, tearing each other to shreds. It's not psychological manipulation to say billions of people are perishing into a Christless eternity who've never heard the gospel. One person every second who's never heard the gospel perishes into a Christless eternity. What Jesus is saying, I want to try to say faithfully, but I want to say it in a way because as was prayed earlier, we we have heard this passage so much we almost can't even hear it again. I want to try to say it carefully and on purpose provocatively in a way that has been said from this pulpit almost exactly like this multiple times. Be careful that your understanding of Jesus does not make him the most heartless, unloving, merciful, evil person in the universe. You would say, well, preacher, I'd never think that about Jesus. How how could I? How how could I be guilty of saying that the Jesus I believe in is the the most heartless, unloving, unmerciful, evil person in the universe? It's, It's very easy. If you suppose that those who never received the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the message that they must believe on Him who died for their sins, Him who rose again to justify them before God, if they never hear that message of salvation and you believe they go to heaven when they die, you have effectively made Jesus the most heartless, unloving, unmerciful, evil person in the universe. Here's how it works. If they go to heaven without anybody telling them or making disciples among them, then Jesus should have said, don't go to all the nations. Do not make disciples. Don't baptize. Don't teach anybody anything about me. Then they'll all go to heaven. But let's say we do go and they reject our message and then perish. It would have served them better that we never go. It doesn't work that way and Jesus knows it. Therefore, he commanded us to go tell everybody, all the ethnicities, all the peoples. And as of today, 2,000 years after Jesus gave these orders to his churches, there's so much work to be done. Today, there are an identified. We know their name. We know where they reside. We know the ethno-linguistic grouping that they belong to. Today, there are 17,406 people groups in the world. That's total. 7,401 of them remain unreached. 42.5% of the current world population has never had anybody obey one of these verses to bring the gospel to them. While the Western church is over here infighting, The rest of the world is perishing without hope. That's why we say in our mission as a local church, I don't think we're good at it. I'm not breaking my arm, patting ourselves on the back. I'm saying we aspire to this. Lord, please fill us with the Spirit so that we don't get distracted from this. We say our mission is threefold. Guide people to faith in Jesus Christ. Grow together in biblical maturity. And go to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. That's what we're about. We say on the front end, that's what we're about. Do you want, I'm not saying are you good at that? Do you think you're an all-star at that? Do you want to be held accountable to that? We say it on the front end. We say it as clear as we can. That's what we're about. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to help hold each other accountable to do. The word for go in verse 19, I says a participle. It's as you're going, everywhere you go. Just newsflash, I'm not, I don't want to quibble over terminology. I'm not even trying to put it down. I've used it of myself. But we don't go on a mission trip. You live on mission. Everywhere you go, everyone you know, you are to be cognizant of the reality that you belong to the king of the universe. He has deployed you. He literally said, as you're going, make disciples to all the peoples until it's fulfilled among all the peoples. That means lots of disciples can't just do it as they're going in their own culture. 
If 7,401 remaining unreached people groups are going to be reached in obedience to our King's commission, then somebody's got to cross some cultures and take the gospel intentionally across lines of common familiarity and homogenous unit principles. So you should already fill the fourth application. Would you pray afresh right now in the privacy of your heart about putting your yes on the altar of heaven? Lord Jesus, you, you bought me with your blood. I surrender my entire life to you. to you. You can use me whenever, wherever, however you please. I'm yours. You paid for me. You bought me. You just used me. So thus far, in the king's command, we've looked at make disciples of all nations as you're going. I want to just mention the remaining local church import, and then I think your prayers are working How is this a local church commission? Verse 19, baptizing them. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The the people who heard Jesus say this sentence did not willy-nilly just go spontaneously baptize random people anywhere and everywhere. They didn't get folks in their bathtubs in their houses and just baptize them when they made a profession of faith. Baptisms in the New Testament, the people who heard Jesus say this sentence obeyed it by baptizing people in conjunction with the authority of a local church. The risen Jesus authorized the church to baptize. I said last week, baptism is a local church ordinance. True baptism is not only administered by the church, but it's also, as we see here, in the name singular of the triune God. These aren't magic words like a formula. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It it doesn't, it's it's not magic phrases. It's a declaration of who you profess to know and belong to through faith in the risen Jesus. If you're saved by Jesus, there are not three gods, names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. There is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are baptized in His name. We declare in a public profession of our faith in Jesus that we belong to the one true God. And all children of the king have done the same in their entrance to the local church. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Not only is this verse to be taken as a local church commission rather than individual Christian, you go teach everybody all that Jesus ever said. We know that baptism belongs to the church, but this verse is impossible to obey unless you embed your life in a local church. It's inescapably churchy. You can't teach people to observe all that Christ commanded unless you're with them for a very, 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 very long time. For example, Jesus spent three and a half years with the men that he's talking to. Not two hours on Sunday morning. Virtually all day, every day for about three and a half years, that's roughly 30,000 hours of Jesus teaching his followers. You can't get that in a five-minute gospel presentation to somebody who professes faith in Jesus. You have to teach them everything Jesus commanded and to observe it. Not know it, obey it. you got to be in a local church for this to be obeyed, and that's exactly what the men who heard Jesus say the sentence spent the rest of their life doing making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, true converts, and gathering them into local churches where they come into the membership through profession of faith and baptism and continue in membership, learning to obey all that Christ commanded. Here's the final consideration. I told you your prayers are working. The king's presence. At the beginning, we saw the king's authority. Then we saw the king's commission. And now we see the king's presence. It's the last part of Verse 20, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew puts it here on purpose. Teach, teaching them to observe everything I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, the presence of the King. Many Bible students point out that the Great Commission opens with Jesus' all authority, and it closes with his all presence, and the commission is in the middle. So if we truly believe that the person who has all the authority in the universe is always with us, then we would never fear what man can do to us, which is exactly what Paul said to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
And that, by the way, was the city where he got his head cut off. God's not against you if you suffer. Peter actually says, if you suffer for doing the wrong thing, stop complaining. If you suffer for doing the right thing, this finds favor with God. The presence of the risen Jesus, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age, means that Jesus is with his obedient children in a special way. Notice that you cannot strip this verse, which is oftentimes stripped, from its immediate context. Is he with all people all the time, always? Yes. Anybody here who's not a Christian has lived your entire life in front of the face of Jesus of Nazareth. You have never escaped Jesus. Waking, sleeping, light, dark, near or far. You are always with him. He is omnipresent. You cannot get away from him. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about what the old guys called his covenant presence. His obedient children have a special manifestation of the felt, known, experiential presence of their king. The one who has all authority is reminding obedient subjects that he's with them. I got you. Let's go. That's how Matthew ends his gospel about the king of the universe. He wants us to have all of Christ all the time. He wants every Christ disciple to be making disciples so that they can live in the saturated experience of the presence of their all authoritative king. So your prayers worked. I'm about to close. What happened before this passage? Jesus got up from the dead. So you have no other option than worship him. The Bible commands that. Do homage to the Son. Kiss Him now, lest He become angry in the way. He's alive from the dead. He's the King of the universe. That's what happened before. What happened during? Go make disciples as a congregation, baptizing new Christians, teaching everybody to observe everything Jesus ever commanded, and do that for all the ethnicities in the world. What happened after this passage? The people who heard this sentence went into a prayer meeting. And they didn't leave until Jesus filled them with the Holy Spirit. They didn't walk off the mountain and start making disciples. They walked off the mountain and went into a prayer closet. And 120 people got saturated with the person and power of the Holy Spirit. These people who heard the commission also saw Jesus ascend into heaven bodily. Then they went into that prayer meeting and those 120 were so filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us the room they were in was shaken. And those people, just that little group, about this many people, were so filled with the Holy Spirit that the the book of Acts says the whole world was turned upside down by their teaching. They started small. Jerusalem. We're going to make this king known right here in our backyard. And then they went to the surrounding region, Judea. And then they went to Samaria. And here we are in Memphis, Tennessee at the furthest ends of the earth. That sounds like Pantata ethne. That sounds like go make disciples of all the nations. And we're given that same command. Would the first century Christians recognize us? Would they walk in the room, sit down, and say, That's our Christianity? Better question is to ask it the other way Does ours look like theirs? Well, here's the best news of all Jesus will raise up people to obey the commission. Whether you obey him, I obey him or not. He's the king. He will fulfill his plan to get the gospel to all the nations. There will be a church militant in every language, ethno-linguistic group of people. He will get the gospel across the street and across the world 
Everyone for whom Jesus died, John 6, will be raised with him on the last day. He will not lose one that the Father's given to him, even if you disobey him. If you and I won't obey these marching orders, God doesn't lose, we do. Jesus will fulfill his plan to get the gospel to all nations. He will establish churches among all peoples. The gates of Hades cannot prevail against the advance of the king's kingdom until he returns. And the Bible ends this way. A massive, innumerable sea of worshipers. All looking at Jesus. The risen Lamb who was slain for our sins and now ascended to heaven's throne in power, robed in glory for countless eternities in this whole sea of worshipers from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. This passage tells us how they're going to get there. And our question is, are we going to be part of what he's doing until that day. Oh God, make us obedient to the orders of our king and don't let us sacrifice the joy of living in his covenant presence. Let us march forward with our Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.